Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups, conferences, trade shows, IT training, music events, or literally any type of event, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. The podcast is sponsored by Apps Events. We produce over 300 of our own events across the globe every year, from training to conferences, and we're now sharing our expertise to a small group of event professionals. There's a couple of ways we can help you. Firstly, we can run the logistics for your event. We have a whole support team who can handle all the heavy lifting for you. We can help set up your website and agenda, liaise with your speakers, deal with the huge volume of questions you'll get from attendees, we can liaise with venues, and we can come to the event to actually run it for you on the ground. Get in touch with james at appsevents.com and we'll jump on a call to see if we can help. Secondly, I offer one-on-one coaching to help event entrepreneurs grow their events. I want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money, and most importantly, to do it all with no stress. So just email me at dan at appsevents.com and we'll jump on a call. And now, on to the interview. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Michael Kruppi. I've just learned how to pronounce his name, and he's the general manager of the Shanghai New Exhibition Center. So going to learn a bit about what it's like living and, and working in China and running events. So welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Dan, and good morning to you. Yeah, yeah. So first of all, I'd love to find out, because you were just saying you've been in China 20 years, is that right? Over 20 years? It's actually 30 years now. It's my 31st 30 years. year. Wow. So that, that's just really interesting because, you know, that's I know a lot of people who've spent some time in China, but not many who've really, you know, made their kind of careers there. So this is a really, really interesting for me. So I guess to start off with, like, how did you end up going to China in the first place? How did it all come about? Well, my first company was a trading company from my hometown, Hamburg in Germany. They sent me to uh, China that time. To be honest, I was not very happy because my plan was going west. So more like, you know, US and this kind of cool countries. Back in the 80s, uh, honestly, China was not really considered to be a cool country. And then, well, over the decades, as we all know, that changed. And I must tell you, the first time I touched down here, that time, even though direct flights were possible, I had to fly via Hong Kong. So touching down, I kind of really fell in love with the country, with the people, with the food, especially with the food, because I, I really can say if I would not have liked that food that much, I would have not made so many friends. And, you know, with friends, you make business and so on, connections. Sure. So that's actually what happened, yeah. And what were you, like, when you said trading company, what were you trading and whereabouts in China were you working? Well, the early days, I was based in Shanghai and Beijing. So my, yeah, first 15 years I spent on, uh, let's say, or in the chemical industry, I was sourcing, selling and buying mainly food chemicals. So I was like, buying raw materials for big food producers in Europe and vice versa. I was also selling European food products to China. Now, how was like, going back 30 years, like what was it like? I'm curious what it was like in Shanghai. I mean, everyone says about Shanghai, like you go back, you go back after like three years and you, you don't recognize it because things change so much with the growth. So right. what, what was it? Was it like, was there many foreigners? And I know there was, there was a couple of areas where, where a lot of the expats live. Were you in one of these kind of areas or did it, did it even exist back then? Correct. No, well, again, and this is changing over time. So there were definitely just a few number of foreigners and there were only a few design areas, hotels where you could stay. And one of them was the Peace Hotel. 
quite quite famous hotel where they have the oldest jazz band in the world playing. I think when I came that time, the guys were 60 years old. I think some of them still playing today. No. It was like uh, whoever knows China or big cities here nowadays. Big cities have these flyovers, highways, you know, crossing each other. That time, Shanghai, Beijing, they had one major street and they had lights or street lights on. All the smaller streets that time even had no lights. Wow. Is, is the old, like, you know, the old part of Shanghai, was that, was that kind of a place people lived and hung out or was that really kind of a bit run down in those days? Absolutely. What people, or Westerners call French Concession or People's Square, let's say these were the areas and by the Bund, these were the areas where people were living, companies were set up. Um, I mean, honestly, if you wanted to meet for a drink as a foreigner, the only place to go was a bar in the hotel. There was no street life basically for Westerners, no Western restaurants. Uh, I remember that time even just getting an orange juice or forget about, you know, German black bread as I like it or sausage, coffee, all these kind of things, which is quite normal today in a world where Starbucks, McDonald's is here everywhere. 30 years ago, it was honestly not available and uh, it was, was really tough to get a decent food, a Western food. Yeah, now, so I guess in those early days, did, did the company get you an apartment or you were just living in a hotel the whole time? Yeah, just a hotel. Apartments technically were not available for foreigners. Right. And so, so how did that transition? Like, you, you, spent, you spent quite a long time doing this job, did you? Or how, what, 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 what was kind of a transition in your career? Yeah, very, very roughly. I started with that company in 86, then going to China 89, worked for them until 2001, I think it was. And then, uh, you know, over time, when China opened up, Western companies came in more and more. And then you also got in the focus of so-called headhunters. Uh, and then that actually what happened to me. And then over time, I changed. Uh, I got you know, more job offers. And the latest was seven years ago. Now as a CEO or GM of the exhibition center here, which is meanwhile, in terms of occupancy rate, the number one in the world. Yeah, now that's interesting. Obviously, you know, it's the events podcast and, and you can, I just, I don't know, you popped up on some conversation on LinkedIn and I, I saw you were running this exhibition center. Now, I, you know, I, I, like I was mentioning before we started talking, I haven't spent much time in China. I mean, my company, Apps Events, um, you know, we're a Google partner in this and Google isn't, isn't yeah. in China. So, but we run a lot of events in kind of, you know, Chinese, you know, what China would consider China, I guess, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, Macau, but but not but not in China now. I know these exhibition centers. I mean, there's a, there's a few big big trade shows I, I hear about. There's um, the Global Sources. I think there's one in Hong Kong, and there's there's another one in in, in Shenzhen, I think. And I know there's yeah. huge, huge. This is kind of the only big exhibitions I, I really know in China, and these are where people go to kind of buy. You know, all the Western buyers go to to purchase all, all different products, and they have different weeks. They have different things like is are you running these kind of is, is there something similar that you run in, in shanghai one of these kind of sourcing sourcing events or multiple ones well we are running or i'm running here an exhibition venue we are 300,000 square meters large 20 exhibition halls uh, which makes us not the biggest one in the world but as i mentioned before the most successful one yeah uh, i'm running one of these so we have a couple of uh, world leading exhibitions like the china furniture we had the huawei conference you know the the Chinese uh, mobile communication. We had the GSMA Congress. We had CS Las Vegas Consumer Electronics Show. Um, we have a couple of uh, really world-leading exhibitions here. Last year, 8 million visitors. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting job because over the year, we have something like 120, 130 shows 
from almost every possible industry. And that makes you, as a venue owner, uh, um, very close, or you, you are very close to the organizers, to the big company CEOs. You meet them, you have a chat. So that gives you a very good insight in many industries around the world. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in things definitely from the point of view of people, people running the events, because you know, that's what I do. And I'm, I'm fascinated okay. by trade shows and exhibitions because I've never, I've never run one. Now, if somebody was looking to kind of come and run an exhibition in China, um, maybe a foreign, a foreign company or a small organization, do, do you have to set up like a Chinese company or could, can you run like a, an event in Shanghai as, like as a foreign organization? Or do they have to come in and set up a local presence in, in China to do something like that? Where they, the law just changed, I think, just six months ago. Technically, as a foreign company, you can set up your own so-called WUFI, wholly owned foreign enterprise, or 100% foreign owned. And technically, you could be very smart to do that. You, you need local partners. You need the network. In the end, you have to sell something. In this case, you sell square meters to exhibitors or to visitors, yep. and um, you cannot do this without a Chinese partner. And that's yep. something we already, as a venue owner, we have like the Las Vegas CES consumer. We recommended them five years ago, a local partner. In the beginning, they were a little bit uh, nervous, being an American association, work with a local Chinese partner, but that went very well. And then one or two years later, that show became very hot here in our venue. So do you, so you, do you like help? Like let's say a foreign company wants to run. Do you, do you help put them in touch sometimes with local partners so they can go and run, so they can run a successful event there? We are helping them. Let's say we don't do this business ourselves. We have yeah. a kind of principle. We are in an independent exhibition venue. And that means we are totally neutral. We only could recommend partners, but in the end, our, customers, our suppliers, they're deciding themselves. And that goes for other areas like logistics, catering, F&B, and so on. We, yep. we want to stay independent. Right. So, so, so you, don't, you, don't, you don't provide all the catering, this third-party catering, and you recommend some, some options for people, and they organize that? Correct. And, and same goes for logistics. Let me just mention that because logistics is a highly sensitive area. There are some venues in the world who own their own catering or their own logistics. And that may work in other parts of the world. In China, we tried it. It did not work. So basically, there's a cake to share. And this, maybe you heard about this yin and yang. So the kind of balance thing you have to observe here very strictly in China. Uh, when I realized I was touching in somebody else's cake, I decided not to go deeper because everybody has to live. Everybody has to make business. Yep. So we, we stick to our expertise and that's running an exhibition venue. Right. So when you say logistics, are you talking about like having the workers to do the setup and stuff? People have to, they these third party companies for that, like for, for setting up the, the booths and things like that. Exactly. And it does not only go in, in setting up the booth. They are also in our industry, a lot of design companies. So they design booths specifically made for special furniture, electronic, whatever yeah. show it is. This is also very interesting business. Technically, we could do that. I mean, basically, I know all the data of all the exhibitors. We have every year 120,000 exhibitors. I could say, okay, I know them all. I do it myself. But that's not how it works. So back to your point, uh, we let people let live and let die. Or what's that? What James Bond said in one of his movies. Right. Um, it really pays off if you really, if you know how to, how to balance the business here, especially in this part of the world.
Now, and have have you seen like over the years? Have you seen foreigners come in and actually run very successful, very profitable events? I mean, is 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 it is it is it something reasonable that you can pull off in as a foreigner to come and run an exhibition in China? You can. I don't know them all, of course, but I would say the ones I know, and I'm here again a long time. I would say ninety nine percent of them are doing it with a local partner. Yeah, sure, sure. What type of like, the visitors is is it? Uh, do you get foreign visitors or is it is it almost all you know local visitors or is it obviously depend on 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 the show well in a normal year dan with uh, let's say plus minus eight million visitors i would say we have probably 90 percent uh, chinese visitors and 10 percent international now in years uh, like these uh, no need to mention the corona in detail but countries are blocked or there's a travel ban no foreigners can come in or out um, this year will be totally different. So we, we all hope, of course, that the travel ban will be over soon. I guess this year, as I mentioned before, three weeks ago, we started our, our exhibitions again. When I walk around my venue, I can count the foreigners on one hand, honestly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's pretty sad, but we are still very busy because luckily China is a very big yeah, market. And uh, if the sales director from a company from Paris, New York or wherever cannot come most of the companies they have a chinese uh, uh, association or a chinese partner or even a hundred percent so-called wufi home old foreign enterprise so they send their local staff so these companies are represented not by a foreign face but by a via a domestic face and that's good enough as well right 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 now yeah i'm fact the coronavirus definitely want to talk about that because it's now we're recording this july the 20th and kind of things are going a little bit back to normal i want to just go back to like how, how did this all start for you because obviously you know this it originated in, in china in wuhan province and what um i'm not sure how, that, how i think that's quite a long way from you but how how did it how did the shutdown come and did you have to cancel events or what was the kind of um when did you first hear about it and, and what we what was your reaction you know, that that Official information, I think, came on uh, January 26th, just days before the first day of the Chinese New Year. That's the basically Chinese Christmas for a Western world, let's say, where, well, in this part of the world, seven to eight hundred million people are traveling, going home to their, to their provinces. Now, yeah. on that day, the government made an official announcement. You may say, of force majeure, uh, that it's not allowed to hold any public events due to a new virus, which... Yeah, came out. And that was a day when from one day to the other, we had to shut down our venue. And logically, we had to shut down any event, any exhibition, any conference and whatsoever, not only here in my venue, all over China, and later on, as we know, all over the world. And did you have like events actually running at the time? Or did you have events coming up? Like what, what was happening at the time when it happened? Yeah, good point, actually. It's, luckily, it was a bit different from 2003 when we had the SARS, which you may remember. That time yeah. I was actually in Guangzhou. At that time, it was, during, it was happening during a show. But this time, it just happened during the Chinese New Year. So let's say, luckily, everything was already closed down because of the Chinese New Year. Yeah. But everything was prepared to reopen around February 9, I think it was. And that time, government announced that the official Chinese New Year was prolonged for two weeks. Right. And so how many, how many shows did, did actually did you have to cancel? How many, how many exhibitions were actually canceled then? Well, the official toll is now 43. 43 exhibitions in my venue had to be canceled. Wow, okay. And, and what um, those organizers, are, are, they, are they planning to run them again later in this year or are they try, hold off and hoping for next year? Like, what, or is it, is it a combination? 
Well, that's first of all, it's a huge puzzle because uh, the situation changed from getting better and getting worse, uh, not on a daily basis, but probably on a weekly basis. So a show organizer who said, okay, let's postpone it until the virus is over. And maybe they remembered the SARS, which was finished in two or three months. They were hoping, okay, the March was canceled. Let's try to do it in um, May, for example. Well, first of all, as I mentioned before, we are already a very successful venue. That means our occupancy rate is 75%. So for that canceled show, not necessarily we had a free time slot available. So that yeah. was the first problem. And then the second problem was that in between, situation deteriorated. So they changed, let's say, to June, and then they canceled June again. And then when things got better, they tried to do it again in September. It was, and it's still, then it's still a huge puzzle. We have sorted out things for most of the rest of 2020, but some shows who could not find a time slot here, they, well, they either totally canceled or some of them, and totally 10, they went to other venues here in China. Right. Now, and what's happening now? Because I saw you actually were running an event the other weeks. Can you talk me through how, how the kind of slow reopening started and, and what, what happened and, and, what, and what the new protocols were? Yeah. So almost since day one, after that official announcement from government came, we were in close contact with, let's say, all the stakeholders, the organizers, the police, public security, fire bureau, government, uh, and so on, to design and to think if situation gets better and if people can attend exhibitions again, under what condition can that happen? So we were designing drafts on and off, uh, you know, face masks, gloves, uh, sterilization, washing hands, disinfections, UV light, infrared, you name it. Um, and while we were doing that, uh, things looked much better. And I remember that day, April 8, we were here in Shanghai finishing our draft and we're, we're trying to send it to the local Shanghai government. On that April 8, that night, came an official announcement from the state council, so from the Beijing central government, saying basically, sorry guys, things got worse again. The whole thing is canceled again for another time to come. So that meant everything was in vain. And for another time, which we did not know how long it would last, the central government said no more shows. And that was a huge setback. Yeah. Right. So, 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 so what, what, what's, what's the current situation then? Like, what, what, are, what are you looking at now? Well, as, as surprisingly that state council note came on April 9 or April 8 that night, on May 9, almost one month later, to the opposite, also as a more or less surprise, suddenly state council announced, good news, green light, China can hold exhibitions again. And that time we pulled the draft out of the drawer, sent it back to government, they approved it. And then basically it was almost showtime. I mean, it took us another three, four, five weeks to get everything ready, prepare, have some rehearsals, because if you rehearse with one or 2,000 people, it's different from having a show with 100,000 people, yeah, that's yeah. for sure. Um, but that what happened. And then in the, um, in the middle of June, it was for us here in Sneeg and Shanghai showtime again. Our first show was a, was a semiconductor show with yeah, just 25,000 visitors. But just last week, uh, we finished the world's largest beauty show, which is called China Beauty. Whole venue covered, 
and totally 180,000 visitors came to the show for three days with, without any problems. Wow, fantastic. And how many, how many events do you have lined up for the rest of the year then currently? Yeah, we will have uh, until, and even people are booking now Christmas time. In the, in the normal year, Christmas was a no-no, even here in China, although China doesn't have a Christmas. Now we even booked Christmas and New Year with shows which were canceled from the first half. So the total number is, for the second half, 88 shows. Wow. Now, what do you which, think? By the way, is a lucky number. You probably remember from your short time in China, eight is a yeah, lucky number. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 88 is a lucky number, yeah. <laughs> now, how is it like, I'm, I'm curious, I want to talk a bit about like, you've worked, you've worked in, you know, the exhibitions industry for, for a while now. Like, what do you, a few, a few things. First of all, like, how, do you think a lot of organizers are going to go out of business, bankrupt? I'm, I'm not sure how it works, if, 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 how much money they could potentially lose if an event's canceled. I mean, did they get to reschedule again for free? Like, do you, do you, do you think a lot won't survive or do you think most are going to get, we'll get through it? Well, we are, well, that's a, that's a black and white question. Then let me answer first from my venue for SNEAC. Yeah, so yeah. most of our, if not all of the top 20, 30 exhibition organizers are my customers. And yeah. all of them had great five to 10 years. And if they are smart enough, and I'm sure they were, they manage their finances well enough to oh, maybe sure. even last one or two years. Now, and that's the same for a venue for us. Well, but to run a show, it's great to have a venue and it's great to have an organizer, but you need exhibitors and visitors. Yep. And I'm afraid probably a not small number of exhibitors may get bust or, or yep. mid-sized, whatever. And if they get bankrupt, well, then who's coming? So it, it doesn't help us if the venue and the organizers are sound and, and financially in a good position. The exhibitors has to be. So that's something which has not happened yet in China. But I believe in the next two or three months, we unfortunately would probably see a not small number of exhibitors in, in different industries who probably will have problems. Sure, that's a very good point. And what, and what do you think, like... Um... In terms of the future for, for exhibitions, I mean, personally, I don't think they're going away, but, but I think there's going to be a lot of changes in terms of more, you know, more security, more, more you know, you know, sanitation, more distancing. Like, what, what do you see as like, I guess, in the, in the near future, the next few years in terms of how, what the changes are going to be for exhibitions? Well, then that's the, that's the key question. We are almost discussing this daily. And I had a meeting with a Chinese friend last week from the exhibition, actually a customer of mine. And he compared that situation with 9-11. And I, I also remember before 9-11, we were flying pretty much, you know, relaxed. Uh, of course, yeah. there were a couple of yeah. safety controls, but not as tough as they were after that. And nowadays, we, we got used to already for the last 15 years going through X-ray and, and that and that. I think something similar will happen for the exhibition industry that people are checked. People go through UV scans, infrared scans, and maybe wearing face masks is a is a thing for the next three, four, five years on a daily basis or inside closed halls or exhibitions and so on. And I guess as we are human beings, we probably will get used to it. I think, you know, that Asia is further along. I mean, I've, I've been going to Asia all my entire work career and, and, you know, always in Asia, you know, people have sick, they wear a face mask. There's a lot of hand sanitizer around. I mean, you know, when you fly into a lot of airports, like I was just in Taiwan before COVID and, you know, there's, there's, there's heat scanners as you go in and they're, they're taking people's body temperatures. This kind of thing is like kind of normal in Asia, but it, as you know, it's not normal in, in Europe. You know, we're very casual yeah. about everything in Europe. And that's, so maybe China and, and, and Asia is more a little bit, you know, you know, they've had SARS, there's been, there's been things that have happened. Maybe people are, are kind of a bit more 
adjusted to behaving like this in, in Asia? I don't know what you think. Well, my view on that is is that, I mean, I'm a Westerner and I'm, I'm, I'm live here for 30 years and I travel very regular to the Western world, five, six times a year at least. My private friends, but also business friends, somehow in the Western world, people immediately, when they have to do something like wearing a face mask, they feel controlled by somebody and they, they lose their rights or freedom or something like that. Here in Asia, we don't, even me now here for, yeah, living here for so many years, decades, I don't have that loss of freedom thing if I have to do something like wearing a face mask or going through another x-ray again or have to queue again for a temperature check. I don't feel, you know, deprived of my human rights or something like that. Somehow in Asia, especially in China, people don't think in that, what's the right word, aggressive way of losing freedom rights or whatsoever. It's, I think it's just different. We are also discussing this with private friends. In a way, um, people in the West, they, they, they think different about this kind of things. True. Yeah, for sure. It, it, yeah, and, 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 and you know, America is more extreme than Europe, uh, you know, and, and, and other areas. Every area is different, you know, but for sure, I, I, yeah. you know, in, in Asia, and, and you can see, I mean, and China is more extreme than most other countries in Asia in terms of people's mentality for this. So I think it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a spectrum, isn't it? Like probably going from east to west, it gets more relaxed. But, um, sure. So, uh, cool. So I think, I think to finish things off, I'm just keen to um, ask a bit about living in Shanghai. You know, I love traveling. I'm always fascinated. And we started off by talking what it was like uh, 30 years ago. You know, I'm, I'm, I mentioned before, um, I'm thinking of moving out to Asia to my with my family because we've just got so much going on there and I'll be, I'll be spending time around uh, and hopefully Google's going to come back to China so I can start running events there. So I'm not holding out any hope <laughs> happening soon, but you know, in the current situation, but you never know. Um, sure. What's it what, like, can you give me a feeling of what it's like now? Obviously you said before, you know, obviously massive changes when you said 30 years ago, there was kind of one hotel everyone used to hang out in. I imagine now there's probably even thousands of places expats hang out in. Like, what's it like? At, like from the point of view of a foreigner, someone like me living there now, like with a family, like what, what's it like? Well, I'm, I'm uh, still, um, how to say on a daily basis, I'm, I'm, I'm still sometimes even surprised and I'm impressed how the Chinese adapt very fast to in general, to changing situations. Yes. And that includes, and I'll try to make the bridge to consumers. I mean, China with 1.4 billion people, and again, 30 years ago, I think the so-called mid-class was probably below 100 million people. And whatever the, the monthly uh, income level was at that time, nowadays China is considered to have a mid-income, uh, um, sorry, mid-level income, a level of four, 500 million people. So yep. the size of Europe. And, and one thing is that uh, maybe the Chinese, in a way, are more curious on new products, new services. Uh, they're more spenders. Uh, I mean, I'm from Germany. If I look at my friends, my, even myself, my, my parents, they, they put every Deutschmark or Euro on the bank account and hoping to get 2 or 3% uh, interest on that, uh, rather than spending. Of course, we were spending, but not as much as people do here. Now, is it good or bad? I, I don't know. But if I look back for 30 years, I think it's definitely good good for the economy and good for the development of this country. So in a way, and I come back to the consumer thing, that is with a fast changing, especially digital world, I don't have to tell you that, then you know that we have just in my venue, we have four, five, six huge digital shows where the latest technologies on 5G and everything is, 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 is shown, which most of my friends in Germany haven't even heard about. Yeah. Um, 
And, and that is something, uh, or another thing is like, uh, I think in, in the old days, um, the, uh, the, the number of applications for patents was very low in, in China and usually G Germany, America, they were very high. Now one of the highest number of applications for patents is actually held in China. So yeah. the inventors, the number of inventors on using new technologies is, I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's grown massively versus just in Germany. I think in Germany, we are way behind the, the 5G or any Wi-Fi or digital technology. So, and, and I think we all know that the next 50, 100, 200 years will be definitely controlled by, by digital somehow. And if you don't know how to manage such technology, well, you are left behind. Yeah. So yeah, to come back to my point about just living generally, like how, 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 what's it, how has it changed in terms of a place to live? Like for someone coming in from another country, Shanghai now, is it, is it, I mean, is there a huge amount of foreigners there now and are they kind of spread around the city? Well, definitely. And, and uh, they, every city, not only Shanghai, they have, well, so-called more foreigner areas or less foreigner areas. So usually foreigners uh, who come from a company, they're living in compounds uh, and then they, the company is renting for them some, uh, some apartments or even some villas, depending on your budget. Uh, and that's, that's available all over China, not only in Shanghai. There are certain areas here in Shanghai, of course, where mostly foreigners li are living. Well, I'm married to a Chinese. We have kids. At home, we speak Chinese. So we are more living in a, in a, in a Chinese environment. But uh, for a foreigner coming today to Shanghai, everything is here. Restaurants, bar, food, travel, communication. You would not feel that you are in, in China if you come for the first time and if you think China looks like 20 years ago. Everything is ready. Everything is available. So that's definitely um, um, a big advantage for a Westerner coming nowadays versus 20, 25 years ago. Because that time, as I mentioned, not even coffee, chocolate or uh, an orange juice was available. And which are the main, is there kind of one, or what are the names of the kind of the main areas where the foreigners live? Is, 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 it, is it one one place or more than one place? Well, there are a lot of places. I mean, I would probably mention the so-called French concession, yep. which is uh, right in the heart of the old uh, Shanghai. Shanghai is split into two, uh, two parts, Puxi, which is like uh, west of the uh, Pu River, the Huangpu River, and then Pudong, that's where we are, east of the of the of the river well the pudong area 30 years ago was farmland was swampland yep. there was nothing um, nowadays pudong has 8.5 million uh, inhabitants so and the rest of shanghai 24 25 million so the greater shanghai area probably 32 million people now pudong is considered meanwhile at least the financial and commercial downtown of shanghai so in the old part of shanghai you have the residential, you have the shopping malls, you have, you know, this kind of things. Um, so there's a kind of split, if you want, between the, yeah, the private life and the business life. But for foreigners, definitely most of them, uh, they still would go to the old part of Shanghai, where they have, uh, yeah, like this French concession, more a Western, yeah, or it's possible to have a Western lifestyle. Sure. And I'm curious, was it like, I don't know what, what's, how kind of much is it getting much more like like local Chinese people want to hang out with foreigners? I know, I mean, I've only been to China a few times, but I, if I compare it to like Taiwan, where it's people, there's much, you know, foreigners get to know locals much easier. There's more English spoken, things like that. Is, is, it, yeah. is it becoming like that? Because China always seems much less like that. But is that becoming, is that changing? Is like to kind of, as, as Chinese have more money and, and speak more English, are they looking to, to sort of get to know foreigners or, or, or is it quite separate still? 
Absolutely. No, that's changing. I know Taiwan also quite well from my old days. And that, yeah, Taiwan was was much earlier in, in terms of mingling with foreigners yep. than here in the mainland. Uh, absolutely. It was more younger people coming in and, of course, more younger students here in China going to universities, uh, maybe working for Western companies uh, and so on. Uh, I think almost everybody speaks English now on the streets, especially the younger people. So yep. that makes it easier, easier for both sides to meet each other. And also more and more, I see more and more mixed couples. I mean, like myself, my wife Chinese, I started earlier already. But more and more younger people, I see mixed couples. People are mingling, and that's great for development of a city. You get the best of both worlds. Uh, so that's it's it's nice to see, and it also makes it easier for foreigners. Yeah. I mean, maybe one one more example, just for what my kids, they go to the German school. The older one just left. In that German school of my younger daughter, easily 50% of the of the students, they have uh, mixed parents. So that yeah. already shows the trend of that. Sure, sure. What, um, yeah, that, that, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, I'm curious, like, to come back to your, your exhibitions, like, what's like, obviously, it's, you have you know, one of the biggest exhibition centers uh, in, in the world. Why, what kind of, what's a small range? Like, if you, someone, I mean, do you run kind of fairly small events and what kind of size in terms of visitors or square meters is kind of a lower end of what you do? Yeah, well, let's say our, we have 20 halls. Each hall is around 11,500 square meter. So the smallest square meter we would sell is probably a quarter of a hall. So let's say around 2,500, 3,000 square meters. Yep. Um, but why we are doing that? Because in the last five years, especially here in China, there's a big shift from B2B, business to business, into B2C, business to consumers. Yep. We have more so-called confects, conference and exhibitions. And... Yep. That is quite amazing to see. And these confects or B2B2C or B2C events, in the first year, they're usually smaller. They don't have so much trade traffic. So a, a, a classical event starts maybe with 500 to 1,000 people. And we have at least from our 130 shows, we have now 20 shows, so roughly 15, 20%, which started on a small basis, quarter of a hall, and some of them even going as big as six or seven halls. Yeah. And uh, one, one good example is a show called Billy Billy. Billy Billy is a Chinese company. They are active in so-called influencing. So their main product is let people design a short video where you can show yourself that you could be an influencer. And that product is selling us crazy here in China for the mostly younger people. And with that product, they started a show here in Sneak three years ago with one hall. And now they have seven halls. And you say, how is that possible? 120,000 square meter for, or 130,000 for just one product? Yeah, it's crazy. Because yeah. this influencer business is growing so fast here in China. Wow. Look, really fascinating. I, I guess that the final thing just to mention really quickly is like, obviously the, the current environment with, with the rhetoric with, with the US and, and China looking like some kind of cold war, like, do you think that's going to affect the, the, the business or do you think this, I mean, obviously no one knows, you know, who knows what's going to happen and hopefully it, it'll, things will calm down a little bit, but do you think this might affect foreign companies coming in and running or, or, or what's, what's your opinion on that as much as you can guess? Well, I guess it will definitely affect foreign companies, but mostly American companies. I predict that the Chinese government will sooner or later open the borders to Asian countries and European countries. But I think they will not open it to, to, to the US due to the yeah, conflict, let's say. Uh, so that would probably mostly favor European or Asian Western companies here in China over US companies. Uh, that's, that's already happening right now. And let's hope that there will be a change. But for the time being, 
that's the situation. Great. Michael, fascinating to, uh, to talk to you. Where can people find you online? I've got your, li- I'll put a, li- a link to your LinkedIn profile uh, here. Anything else? Any other links you want to give to people? No, it's just our normal website, www.sneak.net. Yeah. So that's S-N-I-E-C.net. And that's, that's where you find me also as a contact. So any, there's, a, there's a link for, for an information or contact request. If people want to do that, yeah, contact me there and we will come back to you. I would be gladly discuss with you more than you or your audience about, yeah, whatever, exhibitions, China, anything which is of interest. Fantastic, Michael. Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dan. Have a good day.